Welcome to part the second of an episode of Heavy Metal 101 so damn heavy that we had to cut it into two bloody pieces just to ensure it wouldn't crush us all! Sean, this is our very first two-parter. I feel like we've hit some sort of a podcasting milestone, no? No. No. You're saying this is not anything. Saying you don't know how to write. <laughs> what? 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 What do you mean? <laughs> you control the structure. If this was meaningful to you, you could have done it whenever you wanted. Yes, but I didn't need to. Now things have just overflowed so powerfully I that I couldn't resist. The, of editing. I think it's the muse. Okay. It's it's the muse speaking to me in my dreams. Well, I am thoroughly enjoying this walk down memory lane, revisiting these wondrous foundational bands we had discussed back in season one, and looking in on just what had become of them as the 1980s began. I want more. Are you ready for more? Sure. <laughs> I'm ready for 50% of more. <laughs> All right. You, you couldn't handle any more than that? No. That would be too, too much. much more? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So 50% of more. We can, we can do that. All right, so in part one of this metallic behemoth, we discussed two absolute monuments of traditional metal, Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell and Ozzy Osbourne's Blizzard of Oz, both of which you found uh, adequate, reasonable, not impressive, but not bad? Sure, we'll take that. Okay, so now we're all caught up on how those fine lads from Birmingham all found their feet following Ozzy's bruising 1979 dismissal from Black Sabbath. This time around, we've got three, count them, three tasks to accomplish. So first up, we're going to gently rough up a sacred cow. You see, we're going to discuss Judas Priest's monumental crossover into international superstardom via one of my least favorite of their albums, 1980's British Steel. This may get me into a bit of trouble, but don't worry. As a passionate Judas Priest fan, I promise I will be gentle. That said, John, I'm going to talk a little bit of trash. I don't do much of that here. Are you excited to hear me uh, Does get that mean critical? I have to be the positive. Person? Yes, you have to defend oh, Judas Priest. God, I'm so bad at that. I know, I know. We're very much looking forward to seeing how this plays out. I know that you're a contrarian by nature, so I imagine you'll be internally obligated to uh, be positive. It'll be very hard to agree with you if it comes to. That. Oh yes. This will be exciting. Breaking new ground. So next up, we're going to absolutely make John's day by rekindling his sweet, sweet romance with his much-beloved Motorhead, who released what was unarguably the most important album of their career in 1980 with Ace of Spades. Now this, on the other hand, is an album which I absolutely adore. John, Motorhead are back. Like one of Lemmy's majestic face moles they just cannot be gotten rid of. I know you miss them, no? Is that a thing? You didn't know Lemmy had face moles? I don't know fucking anything about Lemmy. After doing how many episodes of this podcast, I still forget which band he was a part of. Why should I know that he had moles? Am I a terrible teacher or are you a terrible student? It can be both. Okay. Um, as if all that weren't enough, we're going to finish things off a la Animal House with some quick montage-like peeks into what those other Heavy Metal 101 Season 1 bands were up to in and around 1980. There were many changes afoot, and we'll do sort of a Where Are They Now 1980 edition. So we're busy. There's much to do, and it'll be fun! You ready for some fucking fun? Sure. Grand! We'll actually pick up the Judas Priest narrative from just a couple of years prior to 1980. 
On October 9th, 1978, Judas Priest released an album entitled Killing Machine in Europe, but retitled Hellbent for Leather in the US. The reason this is germane to our discussion is because Hellbent for Leather marks the beginning of a phase of what I would call radical simplification of Priest's musical output. You see, this was their fifth studio album, and they still really hadn't quite broken through, particularly in the US. Their fourth album, The Brilliant Stained Class, peaked in the US at only number 173. So they were definitely awesome at this point, but they were not superstars. Albums number five, six, and seven would each be increasingly straightforward and accessible. I would argue that's to a fault, at least until a mighty course correction via 1982's absolutely incredible Screaming for Vengeance. But that's a story for another time. Anyhow, Killing Machine slash Hellbent for Leather marks the start of this period, which I think found particular focus and inspiration after Priest opened for ACDC on the European leg of that band's Highway to Hell tour. It seems clear to me from the material on British Steel that Judas Priest were seriously influenced by what ACDC were doing, and particularly the distilled, streamlined version of ACDC that can be found on Highway to Hell. John, do you know Highway to Hell? I know that song, which I assume is on the album. It is the title track off the album of the same name. I would be willing to bet that I know other songs off that album, I'm but sure I can't say that I know it. Okay, yeah. Well, that's the most famous song on that album, but it's a it's an album full of hits. It was ACDC's big pop breakthrough album before Back in Black. But more on that later. Funnily enough, I'd actually describe Highway to Hell as ACDC's British Steel. I think super producer Mutt Lang smoothed out just a few too many of ACDC's awesomely rough edges and left them with a sound that had distinctly more popular appeal but was less interesting than their prior work. It's a great album, but it's my least favorite ACDC with singer Bon Scott. Mutt Lang didn't produce British Steel, but I do think that producer Tom Allum did basically the same thing with Judas Priest's music here. John, the big ticket songs on British Steel are Breaking the Law and Living After Midnight. Oh, uh, God, are they really? Yeah, those were the hits. Those were the, the I mean, I two. get one of those, but oof. Yeah. I, had you heard those songs before no. this? You hadn't heard either of them? No. Oh, my. Wow. Now, you listened to all of Priest's breakthrough album, Sad Wings of Destiny, last season. That was mm-hmm. the one you really liked. Yep. Would you agree that there is some sort of musical dumbing down that's occurring on the, uh, the British Steel material that you've heard by comparison with what you heard earlier? Uh, in that framing, yes. It's, uh, I didn't think of it as dumbing down and listening to it. It just it sounded different. Like the sort of epic quality of the vocals wasn't really there mm-hmm. and the exciting guitar breaks and sort of all the really interesting bits weren't existent. I think the positive take, the take that you would get out of Judas Priest if you asked them about it, which I don't think is unreasonable, is that they streamlined everything, that they took out everything that was in excess of just the straightforward songwriting, the good hooks and all that, and that's what you get on British Steel, which to me sort of takes away a lot of what I like most about Judas Priest. Fair. Yeah. I dislike agreeing with you, but I think that's fair. Oh my god. It's happening. It's happening! So, on the outside chance that someone is listening to this episode, like John, who hasn't heard any of the classic hit tunes from this album, I'm going to offer some assigned listening to help you rectify that. I'm actually going to provide two listening choices here. We'll include both links in the show notes. So, for novice listeners, you can check out the iconic Breakin' the Law. 
It's more than a bit overplayed, but I do totally love that song, and I'm sure you will too. It's much fun, and it certainly deserves its status as a Beavis and Butthead-approved banger. For those of you who have already heard Breaking the Law on FM radio 46,000 times, but aren't otherwise overly familiar with the totality of British Steel, I suggest checking out the rip-roaring opener, Rapid Fire. I may have some issues with this album overall, but I love how it starts, and Rapid Fire is every bit as strong as any of Priest's great proto-speed metal opening tracks. So, whether you find yourself pounding the world like a battering ram, or just breaking the law, breaking the law, breaking the law, we suggest you pause the podcast, click on the appropriate link in the show notes, or both, and get some serious British steel into your ear holes before we continue. Heads, get banging! So look, I am not here to tell anybody who loves this album, and there are many people who love this album, that there's anything wrong with them or it. By any reasonable standard, this is a classic metal album. It just so happens that this more stripped-down and accessible priest, as found herein, it's less suited to my own tastes than much of their music that came before, or frankly, after. That doesn't mean that I don't scream along with these tunes when I see them played live, just like any other self-respecting Judas Priest fan. I am just not in love with this album in the same way that I am in love with so much of their work. But, for the record, I do love both Rapid Fire and Breaking the Law. Great songs. John, these were both on your playlist, and we also just watched the absolutely fabulous narrative video, short-form video, for Breaking the Law. Uh, what did you think of all of that? Yeah, I mean, look, they're, they're good songs. Mm-hmm. Very memorable, right? Great hooks. They're very catchy. Yeah. They're very catchy songs. Breaking the Law has been stuck in my head for a while now. Yeah, yeah. But I do miss the sort of trimmed fat that they have Yeah, removed. the expansive, the pro, yeah, like, I don't like progressive rock very much, but Judas Priest's progressive side really is a very effective, I think. They're yeah. very good at that. Now, the song that I put on your playlist that I think you actually really fell in love with, which is quite possibly my own favorite tune on British Steel, was The Rage. You really liked that one, right? I did really like this one. For the first time in the history of my assigned listening for this podcast, I voluntarily stopped and listened to this song multiple times. Wow. Including just like the first 30 seconds. I listened to the first 30 seconds like four times. You like the reggae priest? Well, the way that they slide into their groove Mm -hmm. and it, it just doesn't feel right until it does, Mm -hmm. it's really satisfying. Yeah, it's pretty cool. This is the first, uh, I'll talk about this explicitly in a minute, but Dave Holland, who's really the Judas Priest drummer for the entire 80s, this is his first album with them, and I think he he is a very good establisher of grooves. I think that's something that he really excels at. And you particularly hear that in The Rage. The other thing I'd say about The Rage is that probably my biggest problem with British Steel, you alluded to this earlier, is that Rob Halford's vocals are very subdued by his Mm -hmm. standards. You know, there's very little of the upper register particularly, and you don't get a ton of it in the rage, but I think the rage is definitely the best vocal performance, the biggest vocal performance on the album. So, yeah, it's a great song. Absolutely great song. Like, regardless of what anyone thinks about what Judas Priest were doing on this album, myself included, it did exactly what it was intended to do. British Steel made Judas Priest into international superstars, finally breaking them in the U.S., where it went platinum. That's one million copies to you and I. And it hit number 34 on the U.S. charts. 
perfectly respectable. Um, it made it all the way to number four on the UK charts, so that's a goddamn hit heavy metal record. Let's cover just a few other important details about British Steel before we move on to your most favorite band, which we won't talk about at too much length because I don't want you to get the hives or anything. British Steel was released on April 14th, 1980, one week prior to Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell. This was an excellent April in classic heavy metal. The lineup featured the four usual suspects, Rob Halford, voice, K.K. Downing and Glenn Tipton on dueling lead guitars, and bassist Ian Hill. This was, as I mentioned previously, the first Priest album for drummer Dave Holland, who would go on to play on all of their albums released in the 1980s before leaving in 1989 due to, quote, personal problems. Ooh, I have a fun fact. John, were you aware that at one point in his life, guitarist Glenn Tipton actually worked for the actual British Steel Corporation for five years? No! <laughs> Isn't that that's fun? I am just tickled. It's nice. I think that there should have been some sort of promotional tie-in where you get like a hunk of steel with every copy, but it maybe... seems heavy. <laughs> like metal! Okay, let's keep going. <sighs> oh, I, actually, I, I do have one, one more fun fact, which I, I think says something about something. Apparently, the entire process of both writing and recording the material for British Steel took a combined total of just 28 days. That, my friend, is a brisk pace for putting together 36 minutes of music. Yeah, very impressive and very effective. As I mentioned before, the singles released were Living After Midnight, which neither of us love, yep. Breaking the Law, which I think both of us, uh, I mean, like, yeah, it's yeah. good, good. Uh, and I think it's pretty great. And then probably my least favorite song on the album, which was not on your playlist, the excessively anthemic sing-along United. Ugh, not a great song, kind of a... Chant like along. We are the world type of thing. Yeah, it's kind of a little bit, like more so than it should be. It's very, <laughs> it just sucks. I hate that song. <laughs> I wasn't being very gentle there, was I? No, I love it. I don't like that song. They did make music videos for the former two, uh, and, and I did make John watch the narrative video for Breaking the Law, which is definitely something not to Cinematic be masterpiece. Uh, it is great. It is so good. Uh, it features the band breaking into a bank, holding everyone up with their guitars and loud, shredding heavy metal music, and for some reason or another, stealing their own gold record for British Steel from a safe which I thought was a weird uh, Yeah, there's also like 85 different shades of beige. Oh, yeah, lots of beige and that weird effect where... Yeah, uh, the classic. I don't know what you... What is the... I don't know where all the colors get all like... It's like you're watching a porn station you don't get kind of thing, like where all the thing mixes together. Wow, a TV station you don't get. What? Yeah, I forgot. I forgot that you're super young. You probably know. like so old. I spent so much time watching porn stations I didn't get. It was like the thing to do. But I digress. Thirteen-year-old <laughs> Eric, like in the living room, listening to heavy metal while his parents are asleep, like peeking over his shoulder, watching fuzzy porn that he's stolen from the neighbors. That's like so true, so very true. <laughs> because the video is so awesome, I'm going to include a link for it in our show notes. I think it will substantially improve the lives of anyone who watches it, which is certainly one of our goals here at Heavy Metal 101. Having just watched it, my life feels improved. You seem cheerier, I I'm think, than you were. In a better mood. Yeah, good, good. I should note that Judas Priest actually took a still rather unknown Iron Maiden out on the first leg of their British Steel tour, which was a huge boon for those nice young fellows. John, could you imagine a world where Judas Priest and Iron Maiden are playing on the same damn concert? That must be what heavy metal Valhalla is like. You really just hate Metallica, don't you? I like Metallica. 
I think I might mention them in this episode. <laughs> you said metallic at one point. I, well, they're going to come up. God. <laughs> Metallica will come up. They weren't even formed yet. It's 1980. <laughs> You've been talking to Usman too much. Um, so that's British Steel in a nutshell. It is not my favorite album, but it is historically important, and all of you should listen and come to your own conclusions. John, any questions or thoughts about British Steel? No. Moving on! John. Can Eric. we talk? Can we, can we be real for a sec? If we must. I don't want to cause you physical or spiritual pain. Too late. Keep going. Okay. But it is, it, it's, once more, it's time to talk about Motorhead. Can, oh God. can we do that? Do we need a safe word? No, it's fine. Well. I'll just throw myself out the window. <laughs> I'm going to provide you with a safe word anyway. A safe phrase, if you will. The safe phrase is banana hammock. Did you just want to say banana hammock on the radio? Is that, you just felt the need to do that? I felt, I enjoyed saying banana hammock on the radio. Your parents listen to this. I don't know if this is a radio. Is this kind of a radio? Yeah, sure. All right. Banana hammock. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Motorhead really and truly are the founding fathers of thrash metal, and their direct, crucial influence on a little band called Metallica. John really, really wanted me to mention Metallica. Uh, ensures them an especially important place in heavy metal history. That, and the fact that their music is awesome, and they had one of the most iconic frontmen in rock history. Let's get our music on immediately. The entire album, Ace of Spades, is great through and through, but there are few heavy songs more iconic than the opening title track. And if you aren't completely, utterly, and totally familiar with it, then that is your assigned listening. I'm gonna be totally honest. If you don't know that song, you genuinely have been living under a rock. Because yeah. even I knew that uh, So, so you, you, So you didn't know Breaking the Law. You haven't heard that Never. song, but you ha- you are familiar with you were familiar with Ace of Spades. Part yes. of this. Okay. I think it's part of that same iconic Tony Hawk. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a very time. iconic song. Now, if like me, possibly even like John, you've heard this ditty a hundred million times, option two is the opener of side two of the album, Fire, Fire. Regardless of which song you choose, everyone should take the time to raise and toast a large glass of Jack and Coke to the memory of these three delightful, beloved heavy metal rap scallions. John, play me something fast and loud! So, I know you've had your issues with Motorhead in the past, but those are great songs, aren't they? Ace of Spades is fine. Fine, really fine. Look, my issue with all of this music continues to be it doesn't do anything. Like, you establish what, in the case of Ace of Spades, is a really great riff and idea, mm-hmm. and then you do that for three, four minutes without anything else, and I don't care. I mean, the, this is, to me, what Motorhead are about. They're about many things, but one of the things they're about is just pure energy. It's just really building up a head of steam like a boulder rolling down a hill. I think I mixed my metaphors. But but just 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 getting bigger and bigger and faster and faster and going and going they and going. don't get bigger. They start fast and they stay fast and then it ends. Yeah, I think the energy just keeps it just it keeps doesn't. unfurling. It just stays at one level. It starts at 10 and it stays at 10 and it smacks you in the face at 10 for 4 minutes. So you don't like being smacked in the face is no. what you're saying. I guess I respect that. There is something important to consider that is oft a source of confusion, and I I want to get this out of the way. Judas Priest and Motorhead are not, properly speaking, Nawabam bands. 
Like Black Sabbath, these bands were the inspiration for said new album. The new album really began picking up steam in 1979, and by 1980, all of these bands were caught up in said new wave of British heavy metal and had found themselves a fairly massive new following and newfound status as leaders of this vital new movement. Motorhead, for instance, crossed over into iconic status via Ace of Spades, which was released on November 8th, 1980. It went gold in the UK and peaked at number four on the UK charts. Motorhead were huge in the UK. They've never, they've never been close to that big in the US. They're more influential than popular over here. But I think it's fair to say that tunes like Ace of Spades, synthesizing the energy of punk and the musicianship of heavy metal, they established the template for what would become American thrash metal in just a few short years. And John, what's the most important American thrash metal band? Just one more time. Rush. They're Canadian, first of all. <laughs> You're so annoying. Metallica, John. Metallica. See, I said it twice more. Did you? If I say it again, does Metallica come in and like... Uh, Usman appears. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So, I think I know the answer to this. Did you find any love in your cold black heart for any of the other songs from this album that you listened to? No. Um, just for the record, I included Love Me Like a Reptile. I didn't like that. And The Chase is Better Than the Catch. Bored. So neither of those buttered your biscuits? Nope. Wow. Well, to my mind, this is just great, deliriously joyful rock and roll through and through. Lemmy's biggest influences were people like Little Richard and Chuck Berry. I hear that. Yeah, I think you can totally hear that sort of early rock and roll quality within Motorhead's sound. It's what I find so charming about yeah, that. Yeah, I, I love using four chords for four minutes. Well, what do you think early rock and roll did? It did yeah, it... I also hate that. Oh. <laughs> did you not hear the sarcasm? <sighs> okay, all right. Well, this, things are getting a little bit more clear now to me. Eric, I don't know how many times on this podcast I'm going to have to say, I don't like music. I think it's largely terrible. <laughs> Except for The Rage by Judas Priest. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Okay, all right, I have one more genuinely fun fact. I think you will think this one is fun. Jimi Hendrix, unsurprisingly, was a ma massive influence on Lemmy. We, we like Jimi Hendrix, right? Sure. Yeah. Lemmy toured as Jimi Hendrix's roadie for eight months back in 1967. That is a fun fact. Yeah, that's pretty cool, right? And now, apparently, it was Jimi Hendrix who suggested to Lemmy that he drop playing guitar and switch over to the bass. Huh. Yeah. He's like, hey, you suck. Go play bass. Probably, yeah. <laughs> I can say that I'm a bass player. <laughs> yes. You're not good enough, so play the other thing. Yeah, it's too many strings, too many notes, just take it down. Yeah. All we need you to do is dum 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 Yeah. So, a reminder that this album was recorded by the classic Motorhead Power Trio lineup consisting of Lemmy Kilmister, vocals and bass, Fast Eddie Clark, guitar, and Filthy Animal Taylor, drums. We can't possibly not look at these beautiful, dearly departed men as photographed for the legendary album cover. So, John, take a look and talk to us about the cover of Ace of Spades. What do you see? All right, so we got three guys mm -hmm. dressed in all black. <sighs> Two of them are wearing cowboy hats. One of them has a tan poncho. Mm -hmm. They appear to be standing on what looks to be one of those poorly cut out sides of the roads. 
Like, you could call it a desert, except it's at a weird slope, which implies uh, not desert. Ooh, good eye, good eye. It's a bright, sunny day. Mm -hmm. We clearly haven't reached the punk era and the 90s yet, because they are all actually looking at the camera. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not trying to, like, that kind of cool. Yeah. They're trying to intimidate you. It's a different kind of Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Picture, like, the three amigos, but in black. And kind of stinky. Don't they look smelly? I think they look uh, smelly. You know, I could, the first guy looks, the, the person... Filthy animal? Yes, he looks, <laughs> he looks smelly. Yeah. It, to my mind, you can practically smell this album cover. Uh, so, as we said, that's Filthy Animal in the front, Lemmy is the one in the middle, and then out there on the right is Fast Eddie. So, they went with a Western theme, which comes out of the song Shoot You in the Back, which I didn't include on your playlist, but it's a great tune. It's amusing to note that this photograph was not shot in the desert, which you sort of made note of. Rather, it's a sandstone quarry just outside of London. Apparently, the blue sky that you mentioned had to be airbrushed in, as it was a typically gray UK day during the photo shoot. I love think. that. Yeah, I think that's pretty fun. The key idea to keep in mind with what we've discussed thus far on these past two episodes is that Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, and Motorhead were three foundational British heavy metal bands from the 1970s who influenced the generation of bands that were part of what was to become known as the new wave of British heavy metal. Artistically and commercially, these bands were all swept up in that wave, and all of them, including Ozzy Osbourne's solo work, were extremely well situated as established artists making excellent music in the year 1980. John, do you have any questions about any of this before we just take a brief peek in on a few of our other season number one friends and see what they were up to in 1980? No, I can't wait to return to our oh. old friends and buddies. Now, you have to admit, I was pretty gentle there with the motorhead, right? Well, it was quick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I care. I do. Okay, let's now begin a series of vignettes, checking in on how some of our other musical friends from season number one were faring circa 1980. We'll address these bands in the same order in which we covered them in our first season. We'll also attempt to answer one general question about the status of each of these bands at that time. Was their career in the process of waxing? as with the case of all the bands we've discussed thus far, or were they waning? As the new decade began. Picture it. New York, 1977. An alcoholically debilitated Alice Cooper checks himself into a sanitarium in an effort to get sober, which apparently did help him kick the booze, though he was soon to develop a massive cocaine habit. <laughs> That's how that went. John, are you team alcoholism or team cocaine addiction? Uh, I mean, I guess if I have to... Wait, are we talking about in general or in reference to Alice Cooper? Let's go with in general. In general, I think, uh, you know, I'm more of an alcohol guy than yeah. I am a cocaine guy. I don't see you being a cocaine. Cocaine. <laughs> that wouldn't work. That just wouldn't be right. Not my vibe? No, no, I feel like the universe would just, like, fracture into <laughs> little pieces. Um, I mean, frankly, neither is super great, right? You know, it's just not. Yeah, not a we great shouldn't way to do. endorse no, some no. sort of I say, illness. We here at Heavy Metal 101 say, uh, get help. Great, now we have a copyright infringement suit. In 1980, 
Alice Cooper released the first of four new wave-influenced hard rock albums that he has no memory of recording. That's amazing. <laughs> Frankly, I actually think his 1980 release, Flesh the Fashion, is fantastic, even if it isn't a heavy metal album. If you are interested, I would suggest checking out the Thomas Dolby-esque single, We're All Clones. It's a great tune. Just for the record, Cooper would definitively rejoin the heavy metal phrase starting in 1986 with the album Constrictor, but that is another story. Alas, while I really like his new wave period, his life was a total clusterfuck at the time, and Alice Cooper's career was most definitely waning in the early 1980s. Uh, now, John, since we all know that the show is really just about my life and times as a vigorous, youthful teenager, I'm assuming that you remember the very most favorite band of my youth, right? Right? Um... Uh, uh, is it poison? Oh my god. Kiss! Oh yes! Yeah. <laughs> Did we talk about that? Yes! Oh, I forgot. I know it was a good episode. We talked about Alice Cooper, we talked about Kiss. We're going in order here. This should spring. I don't remember. Uh, oh, god. Does that mean we're going to have to talk about death again? No, no, we're not going to talk oh, about good. death. That would, They were not doing anything in 1980. They were like nine. Okay. Anyway, shut up. <laughs> Alright, look, we've obviously got to catch up with my beloved Kiss. <laughs> Unfortunately, our heroes had grown increasingly fractious by the time they each released solo albums in 1978. And by 1979... Even the drummer? Yeah, even the drummer. Yikes. I know, it's so bad. Uh, uh, by 1979, when they released my much-adored disco-inflected Dynasty, drummer Peter Chris had most of both of his feet out the door. In fact, despite still being featured on the album cover, the Catman performed on only one song on Dynasty, singing and drumming on the track Dirty Living. A session player, Anton Figg, drummed on the rest of Dynasty and on its equally fabulous and equally underappreciated 1980 follow-up, Unmasked. Chris was only officially replaced for the Unmasked tour when the great Eric Carr, rest in peace, enlisted in Kiss and became a whole new character, the Fox. John, this here and now is the most important decision you'll make today. Take a look at these pictures. Are you team cat or are you team fox? Do I have to pick a team? Because <laughs> I gotta be honest, I don't want to associate myself with either of these gentlemen. Wow. As someone who came of age with 1980s Kiss, I'm totally team Eric, aka the fox. Not you? I mean... Yeah, you want to say it again? I do. Yeah, yep, yep. you can think about this. Team Fox. Ooh, oh look at that. Like, he's got like a hair. mink stole thing going on. Uh, but the choker is just... Yeah, it's terrible. Also, is his hair gray? A little was bit. Was his hair already gray? Or he did was... his white makeup just get into his... It could be both, but he was a little bit older than the other guys. So. Wow. I, no, I got to pick just team not involved with Kiss. <laughs> For the record, I adore this supposedly fallow period of Kiss, and I am a total sucker for both Dynasty and Unmasked. That said, neither of those albums are especially heavy. Unmasked particularly is probably the poppiest Kiss album of all, though holy crap are those songs catchy. If listeners have never heard any of that material, I strongly advise checking out either Side 1 opener Is That You or Side 2 opener Tomorrow. Both are killer pop songs. No, it's not an anti-cover. It's a great song, though. All right. Long story short, it would take also losing Ace Freely, who left after 1981's mess of a concept album epic, The Elder, and was replaced by Shredder guitarist Vinnie Vincent, 
for KISS to find their metal heart once more. From 1982's Creatures of the Night on, KISS were once again a pop metal band. John, does it fill your heart with gladness to know that KISS would depart from heavy metal only for a short time? Uh, my heart doesn't care. Your heart just does not care. Not I, at all. I can see that. I can see that. Okay, then. To sum up, KISS's career was definitely... Then you knew you wouldn't like my response. I did. Yes. I can literally predict everything you're going to say. I could write your stuff down. <laughs> And the funny thing is, when I'm writing these, I have these discussions in my head. <laughs> just, just for the record. Yeah. yeah. Um, to sum up... You should record those and see how Yeah, it would be interesting, actually. Maybe I'll do that at some point. To sum up, Kiss's career was definitely on the wane circa 1980. However, after appearing publicly for the first time ever without makeup on MTV on September 18th, 1983... Kiss's star began to rise once again as a glam metal band, soon to catch the wandering eye of a nice young Jewish boy from California named Eric. Okay, how's about John's other favorite band? Okay. Hey, keep going here. The Boys from Boston. Who are the Boys from Boston? The greatest rock and roll band America ever produced. The Rolling Stones? Jesus Christ, they're English, you idiot. Aerosmith. It's just so fun to annoy you. <laughs> You're so annoying. I know it's easy. Well, we're we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about Aerosmith. We're gonna do an. Int- we're gonna start now. Oh, we're gonna gosh, talk until like these seven. Guys fucking suck. <laughs> it's, it's not that they sucked. It's just like what was metal about this? It this, was just like stupid pop songs. It's not. They're establishing so much of what's gonna go into pop metal, glam metal. All that sort of bluesy metal stuff. It's uh, very important stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Okay. The entire classic lineup of Aerosmith began the recording process for their very solid 1979 album, Night in the Ruts. But apparently it was a fight between bandwives. Something about lead guitarist Joe Perry's wife throwing a glass of milk at bassist Tom Hamilton's wife that led to Perry's departure prior to the conclusion of that album. John, do you also worry that my wife throwing milk at your wife may spell the end of our magnificent podcast partnership? Uh, no. Hmm. I don't think that would ever happen. Hmm. I think if anything is going to end this podcast, it's just going to be your wife saying, no, you can't go do that anymore. That seems considerably more likely, yes. (laughs) So... Aerosmith were definitely a band whose popularity was waning at this time, and they were selling a lot less albums and playing considerably smaller venues at the start of the 1980s. However, I should note that it was in the year 1980 that they released Greatest Hits, an album which didn't make too many waves upon its original release, but which did eventually sell a rather impressive 12 million copies. It was also the collection known as Greatest Hits, which, about 10 years later, first introduced me to 1970s Aerosmith. It really is a damn fine Greatest Hits album, and I came of age in the 1980s, so I didn't know who Aerosmith were until they had their later, later period success. So it was very interesting for me to go back and hear that material. So just for a record, mm-hmm. I think some band should release an album called Greatest Hits that is all entirely new music. <laughs> Faith No More has an album called Album of the Year, which I- I always that's, thought was, that's pretty similar. Was, yeah. was pretty okay, charming. I respect that. Yeah. 
Uh, guitarist Brad Whitford left Aerosmith in 1981. He was our MVP in our Aerosmith episode, you might recall. He wrote all their heaviest songs. Yeah, yeah of course I remember that. <laughs> and though Aerosmith never did go completely dormant, they were pretty much a total mess as a band and as human beings until their eventual massive comeback, which featured the return of the complete original lineup. That would be 1987's Permanent Vacation. All right, they had an album called Done With Mirrors before that, but they were still a mess. And that album did no, no, no business. It also kind of sucks. John, do you know Permanent Vacation or even better, 1989's Pump? No. You don't know those albums? No. Oh, yeah, right. I think when we were on our way to record the Aerosmith album, I played you Dude Looks Like a Lady, and you had never heard that song. Oh, I've heard that song. Oh, good. You had heard that song. Yeah. Right. But you've never heard the albums? No. Have you ever heard an album? Do you even know what an album is? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I good. have. Good. Uh, just not by anyone you would like. Ah, fair enough. We've been doing a whole lot of waning in these vignettes. Alice Cooper, Kiss, and Aerosmith all experienced some pretty serious career lulls at the start of the 80s. I feel like there's something that we could note about that. That they were all on drugs and falling apart as human beings? That could be one way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You could also say that maybe their music wasn't very good. Maybe your music isn't very good. Now, the good news is that all of these bands would eventually get their shit very much back together before the 1980s were out. Van Halen, however, would do no waning in the 1980s. No, sir. I mean, it's worth considering Van Halen were only just getting started on their road to world domination in 1978 when they released their debut, so they were very much still a band in their youthful prime circa 1980. And they were so damn good. A good faith argument could certainly be made that albums like 1980's Women and Children First are more hard rock than heavy metal, but I personally consider all of the David Lee Roth-led albums to be canonically pop metal. Either way, each and every one of Van Halen's 80s Roth-led releases are extraordinary and well worth many, many a close listen. And the band was huge throughout that entire decade, even after Roth left and Sammy Hagar took over the vocal duties. They actually got bigger commercially at that point, though even less heavy. I do not have much to say about Deep Purple or Rainbow circa 1980. Deep Purple actually went completely dormant between 1976 and 1984, and their Mark II reunion album from 1984, Perfect Strangers, is not a heavy metal album at all. So we're not going to talk about that. Meanwhile, following the departure of Ronnie James... You're, you're, you're okay with that? Yep. Good, good. Following the departure of Ronnie James Dio for Blacker Pastures, Rainbow continued, but they became increasingly poppy. I don't know post-Dio Rainbow very well, but I do not like what I've heard. Uh, it's just not, not, not my thing. Uh, that said, from a commercial standpoint, they only got more successful through their 1984 breakup, so yay for them. John, I've been wondering about something. Uh, mm -hmm. Who is your favorite German pop metal band from the late 1970s? Radiohead. There, there's a lot of things wrong with that. <laughs> Although, ironically, I actually saw Radiohead live in Berlin. Yeah, yeah, the English band Radiohead yeah. in the 21st century uh -huh. because they were not around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. You don't pay attention to anything we talk about, do you? Literally nothing. No, no. Well, everybody else's favorite German pop metal band from the late 1970s is the Scorpions, yeah? They were only just beginning to truly hit their pop metal stride with 1979's Love Drive. The 1980s Animal Magnetism, it continued to consolidate their status as pop metal masters, and I suggest checking out the single The Zoo if you're not familiar with this era of their work. 
You familiar with animal magnetism? No. No, I didn't think so. I bet you you know Rocky like a hurricane, though. From I do uh, know yeah, Rocky I love it for a sting. That's a little bit later, but great, great album. Scorpions wouldn't truly perfect their formula until 1982's Blackout, but from 1979 to 1984's Love It For a Sting, the Scorpions were in the process of getting ever bigger and ever better with each successive release. Theirs was a career that was most definitely waxing. Okay, it is time for our last, but definitely not least. So, John, this is going to be an important question for you. I'm ready. Do you recollect what final season one band we've yet to check in on? Got to be ACDC. Yes, AC fucking DC. You do know things. I remember things I care about. Oh, that's nice. You remember my birthday? <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to make you answer that question, you rap bastard. <laughs> so, John, this is this is a question I think you could conceivably answer. Uh-huh. Do you know what ACDC were up to in 1980? Uh, were they touring? <laughs> <laughs> Why would that be the answer? <laughs> so, <laughs> from a worldwide cultural standpoint, I think it could fairly be said that the single most important album released in the year 1980 was ACDC's monumental testament to the ability of human beings to bounce back from adversity, Man Black! John, have you ever heard the album Back in Black? Was that what you said? Man Black! That's my Brian Johnson. Let's keep working on it. <laughs> well, anyway, but you... yes, I have heard the album Back yes! in Black. Yes! You and everyone else ever, yes. 50 million copies. Wow. <laughs> it's a lot of copies, though, right? 50 million. That's, that's, yes. Whew. A lot of people have that. Now, sadly, this was an album that emerged out of darkest tragedy. The band was already at work in the studio on their follow-up to Highway to Hell when sometime, either late in the evening on February 18th or early in the morning on February 19th, iconic singer Bon Scott passed out from alcohol poisoning and asphyxiated on his own vomit. How heartbreaking is that? Tragic. Ugh, what a way to die. The band very seriously considered disbanding after Scott's death, but apparently they were encouraged by his family to continue, and so they eventually hired singer Brian Johnson as his replacement. The resultant album, Back in Black, was a truly historic artistic and commercial comeback from the brink, and it is an album that no self-respecting rock fan should be unfamiliar with. Even John! I own a copy of that album. Holy shit. So I you're know. one of the 50 million. I am one of the 50 million. No, good for you. Me too. Me yep. too. There we have it. We've caught up with all the 70s metal musical friends we made back in season one and checked in on how they were situated commercially and artistically as the new decade commenced. I feel purged, John. It's like I vomited up all the evil that was left over in my soul and am now sanctified and purified. All right, so we are now ready to meet a whole bunch of new players on a stage that's only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger for the foreseeable future. John, do you have any questions, comments, or thoughts you'd like to share about any of what we've discussed thus far in this still youthful second season of ours? I'm curious if you have a feeling about how much of the continued success of this genre is based on the nostalgia deeply held by people like you who grew up with this music. Because I did not grow up with any of this music. Mm -hmm. And I know people my age and people younger than me who did grow up with this music and do feel very strongly about it. But as someone who did not, 
When I try to listen to it, there is nothing about it that appeals to me in any way, be it the, the subject matter, the musical style, like there's nothing about it that I understand as to why someone would want to listen to this. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if it isn't like you grew up with this and it takes you back to a better time in your life and that's why you love it. Well, I, I mean, I, I'll answer that in two ways. So first of all, yeah, look, there's no question about that popular music is totally bound up in the specific time and place from which it came. And those of us who came up with that popular music, we're gonna have a tremendous amount of nostalgic connection for it, right? I think it's possible to love this music just as much as someone who grew up with it, but part of why someone my age loves this music is because I grew up with it. There's no question, and to say otherwise would be disingenuous. That said, and you, I think you know this, I spend a lot of my time, probably actually way more of my time, listening to contemporary heavy metal music, music that I didn't at all grow up with, and I love that music. I have, I guess, a nostalgic frame of reference for where it came from that probably helps me to appreciate it. But if I'm listening to, you know, a Six Feet Under, you know, death metal album from 2016, I'm not listening to it nostalgic. I think both things can be true. In other words, I think that, yes, I and probably a lot of our podcast listeners have a tremendous amount of nostalgic attachment to this music, and that informs how we listen to some of it. And some of it probably is shittier than others of it. But then, of course, at the other, on the other side of the spectrum, there's a lot of amazing music. You're, like, you're, you're being a little bit dishonest because I know that some of this music you've actually liked. I know that you liked Judas Priest. I know you really liked The Rage just I now. The Rage. Yeah. I know that you like, you know, you like ACDC. I know, you know, and I, and you know, you weren't doing much in 1980, but you liked the album Back in Black. So I don't, I, I don't, I, I think that we, we can't ignore nostalgia, but I think it's fair to say that there is more to this music as a huge body of work than just nostalgia. Some of it may be much more effective if you're attached to it nostalgically, but some of it's just damn fine music. I mean, certainly, you know, Black Sabbath's Paranoid. I didn't grow up with Black Sabbath's Paranoid. I was negative four when that album, negative, wait, no, I was negative six when that album came out. Yeah, but I don't, I, so I should clarify, I don't mean like growing up with in the sense that like you were literally alive when it was coming out. Oh, but, like but you, you were exposed to it at the age when, uh, yeah. like. Yeah, I, yeah, and yeah, I, I mean, that's definitely important. It's definitely easier to get into music when you're an adolescent and a teen. It just is. No question. But I don't think it's impossible to get into it otherwise. I just think it's easier. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that. Yeah. You feel, you feel good about all of this? I think I think we're, as we go further, I think you're gonna find you're gonna find more music you don't like, and you're gonna find more music find you do a like. Lot more music. I, I look forward to the next band that I like. I don't suspect we're gonna talk about it anytime soon. <gasps> Stay tuned. Well, why don't we remind all the fine folks who are listening, all these nostalgic listeners, how they can get a hold of us with their bottomless well of wry, insightful commentary and their absolute hatred for all the shit you say. Yeah. Please feel free to tell me how dumb you think my opinions are at our email address, heavymetal101podcast at gmail.com, or you can leave us a voice message where you curse me out at anchor.fm forward slash heavymetal101podcast, or you can find, uh, it says, uh, 
lost, but it's just Eric. You can find Eric on social media through Facebook at Heavy Metal 101 Podcast, Twitter at Heavy underscore 101, or on Instagram at Heavy Metal 101 Podcast. If you insult John in a way that I find amusing, I will definitely pass it along to him. So please feel free to do so on uh, any of those, any of those outlets. Um, you also can and should tell all of your friends about how much you love our weird little podcast, or perhaps you might even consider sharing a link or two on your own social media so that we can welcome new friends into our devilish oral death cult. Meanwhile, John, could you sing us out via You Shook Me All Night Long, but rearranged as a heartfelt ballad dedicated to the memory of Bon Scott? You shook me all night long.